Greetings again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of OSI Today, the podcast featuring news and views from around the Office of Special Investigations. I'm Wayne Amon from OSI Public Affairs, and I'm very pleased to be joined by a fellow Chicagoan today, the Executive Director of the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, Mr. Jeffrey Speck. Sir, as always, good to see you again, and welcome aboard to your first podcast. Thank you for having me. Sir, uh, a lot uh, has been going on today, and to put kind of things in a little bit of context um, uh, for our listeners, we're recording this on uh, January the 20th, which is a big day in the history, as it turns out, of uh, DC-3, and we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but uh, first, we'd like to, for our novice listeners who may not be familiar with DC-3, sir, uh, what exactly is the DOD Cyber Crime Center in layman's terms, and, uh, what, is it, uh, and what is it designed to do? Okay. So, so the, as you said, the DOD Cybercrime Center, which I'll refer to as DC-3 from this yeah, point yes forward. Sir. <laughs> uh, so DC-3 was, was first stood up back in, in 1998 uh, and really as an evolution of, of what all the law enforcement and counterintelligence elements within the department were doing throughout the 80s and 90s when mm -hmm. it came to mm -hmm. digital multimedia forensics. Right. Uh, so the Department of Defense in 1998 made a decision to consolidate, centralize that under the DOD Cybercrime Center, DC-3, right. uh, principally for digital multimedia forensics uh, and cyber training uh, mm -hmm. back in 1998. And that's all DC-3 was at the time. Right, right. Uh, we've since evolved where we still do digital multimedia forensics. We do cyber training, uh, but we've added a number of mission sets beyond that uh, uh -huh. that have continued to evolve over the last 23 years. Sure. Uh, to include uh, a technical solutions development shop. So we do research and development for mm -hmm. both forensic tools and analytical tools to help yeah. both DC3 and execution of its mission, right. as well as the customers that we support. Mm -hmm. uh, we stood up an analytical group uh, to better understand the adversary and what they're doing in cyberspace to inform investigations and operations and to provide operational leads right. for those right. that have the authorities to execute those investigations and operations. Right. Uh, we stood up a mission that we call the DICE, which is the DOD Collaborative Information Sharing Environment, mm -hmm. uh, which is a public-private partnership with the Defense Industrial Base to share cyber threat indicators. Right. Uh, that's us as a government furnishing indicators to the Defense Industrial Base. Mm -hmm. And that is, in turn, the Defense Industrial Base sharing with us indicators of what they're seeing in cyberspace in terms of attacks uh, mm -hmm. on their infrastructure and their networks. That can so a real, a real synergy is developed then? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been a partnership that's been in place since 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the latest mission that we stood up at DC3 is the, the DOD Vulnerability Disclosure Program, which is a partnership with ethical hackers. Uh, currently, it's about 2,000 ethical hackers around the world wow. uh, that have an open invite to identify vulnerabilities on, on DOD information networks, hmm. uh, particularly DOD publicly facing websites. And as they identify those vulnerabilities, they identify those to DC3. Right. Uh, we do some validation, some triage, then we share it with the JFHQ Doden, uh, which in turn then works with the, the, the elements within the Department of Defense that own those websites to fix those vulnerabilities. So it's kind of getting left of boom of understanding where those vulnerabilities are on, on, on DOD, again, publicly facing websites right. Uh, right. to close that. And, and so that's the protection of PII, it's the protection of operational information. Again, for our listeners, PII is, uh, uh, once again, uh, in Personally moment. identifable information. There you go. There you go. Correct. Uh, kind so of things that they can identify with. Absolutely. So the protection yeah. of our service members. So, yeah. so I think yeah. the OPM breach where where uh, all of our information was, was stolen from our background investigation. So that, that equates to PII. Sure, sure. Uh, so so a, a variety of different missions under the umbrella of what is today DC-3. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of synergy between each of those six missions. Uh, that again brings to bear a capability for not just the originating law enforcement and counterintelligence community. 
uh, but the DOD at large. Wow, well, that's that's quite a, uh, a, a, for lack of a better term, uh, quite a laundry list of things that uh, fall under uh, you know DC three's umbrella. Uh, now, before we dive into the history making news made by DC three today, sir, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And I have to ask this, and I've asked this of. Uh, all of my guests so far, uh, because of uh, it's been the elephant in the room now since uh, about March of 2020, uh, and that's COVID-19. Uh, how gratifying is it for you to see the way your organization has adapted and overcome the challenges of the pandemic to keep performing its mission at such a high level? Yeah, so uh, multiple words. Astounding is one of them. So so yeah. I was one of those and, and many in government that was a, a relative naysayer to telework before COVID. Right. Uh, so you maybe foresee 10 to 20% of the, the, the force effectively teleworking. Right. right. Uh, COVID obviously drove a completely different paradigm. So we right. have been since March, uh, we've been operating at about 75% telework. Hmm. Uh, and what's, what's amazing about that is, one, the rapid evolution of how we do the mission. Uh, and two is, is the level of productivity that has been not just sustained, but no kidding, increased. So, really? uh, again, the six LOEs, the lines of effort that we have within DC3 that right. I talked about previously, uh, our level of productivity in, in all six of those lines of effort actually increased uh, throughout wow. the pandemic. It didn't decrease. Wow. Uh, the one negative impact we had, uh, and when I say that our productivity increased, our for our laboratory and what we do with digital multimedia forensics. Sure, sure. Uh, because of the impact of COVID, and, and I think probably uh, arguably less proactive investigations among the law enforcement uh, mm -hmm. and counterintelligence community, right. we had less influx of new evidence, uh, but the manner in which we process it and the days in lab, our ability to turn evidence as it came in, right. uh, again, a tremendous improvements, and, and again, due in large part to uh, an evolution of how we do uh, the digital multimedia forensics. Wow. Uh, and enabling our examiners to do it remotely, which is something that's new as well. So, no, incredibly impressed with... with it speaks volumes for you folks. Yeah, just innovation. <laughs> so it, it's constantly evolving and figuring out how to, to how to accomplish the mission and no matter what the environment is or circumstances that you're presented with. Wow, outstanding. Now, sir, uh, last year uh, in an OSI Global Reliance Magazine article, uh, and I'm holding it in my, my hand right here for those of uh, you listening, uh, you wrote about the origins and evolution of DC-3. Now, earlier today... That evolution continued in a major way with the establishment of DC-3 as a field operating agency. Now, for context, once again, in the structure of the United States Air Force, uh, a field operating agency, or FOA, uh, is a subdivision of performing field activities beyond the scope of any major command. And those activities are specialized or associated with an Air Force-wide mission and do not include functions performed at management headquarters. Now, all that being said, what does it mean for DC-3 to now be recognized and perform as a FOA? Yeah, so, so to me, I mean, so for the wide variety of folks that we support across the Department of Defense, I think it'll be seamless. I mean, so for DC-3 and me personally, I think it's recognition of the evolution I just described. So mm -hmm. it's, it's where we started back in 1998. Mm -hmm. It made sense for us to be what, what we've been structured as historically, which is an operating location. Right. Uh, so we have been up until the 15th of January, which was when the FOA took place. Right. So effective date was the 15th of January. Sure. Up until that point, we have been an operating location of headquarters OSI. Hmm. Uh, if you look across the entire structure of OSI, most of their operating locations are two to maybe upwards of eight people. 
Right, right. Uh, we DC3 because of the evolution that we talked about. We, we no kidding, are, are operating now with a, with a force of around 500. Wow. Uh, and the complexity of the various missions that we execute, not just in support of law enforcement and intelligence, not just in support of the Air Force, but really in support of the Department of Defense at large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's recognition of that evolution and, and, from my perspective, just an overdue restructuring uh, to provide the recognition that DC3 is operating as a, as a DOD-level uh, and really performing the mission of, of a field operating uh, agency uh, in terms of the complexion of the mission that we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in doing a little research on uh, FOAs, uh, I, th- I believe there's something like uh, uh, nearly 30 of them uh, in the Air Force. So uh, uh, DC-3 is in uh, some pretty select company, which is, uh, again, speaks volumes. We are. So two other sister FOAs uh, within the Air Force. One is OSI. So OSI yeah. is a field operating agency. And then AFIA, which is the Air Force Inspection Agency, also a FOA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all three of those now will be aligned under the Inspector General of the Air Force. So we're not going far. <laughs> uh, in fact, the relationship with OSI w- will will be sustained. Uh, right. But so my boss, now Lieutenant General Sammy Saeed, right. uh, is also the boss of, of uh, Commander Terry Bullard as the, the commander of OSI. Yep, General Bullard. Uh, right. General Bullard. Yeah. So so, uh, yeah, so not going far. So we will just be a FOA under the umbrella of the Inspector General, again, continuing to support uh, the Law Enforcement Counterintelligence Mission, supporting yeah. the Air Force, and supporting the Department of Defense. Very good. Now, uh, sir, before you assume the Executive Director uh, post at DC-3 uh, back in November of 2018, you were the Executive Director uh, at OSI for six years. Uh, just how did your tenure with OSI posture you to assume the DC-3 position? Yeah, so I share this fairly transparently. So I was in the front office of OSI for six years. So I was the executive director for, for OSI after a career, and I'm still an OSI special agent, which right. I'm very proud of. Right. Uh, again, having sat in the front office of OSI for six years, uh, and, and again, OSI owning DC-3 in terms of as an operating location, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I will admit to everybody that asks me, I was relatively blind, and I think most in the front office of OSI were relatively blind to what DC-3 had evolved into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bringing the experience of, of having had the honor to be the executive director of OSI for six years, and the partnerships I was able to develop through that mission, uh, and, and that optic, and the boards that I sat on, yeah. and really have a, a very comprehensive understanding of, of the law enforcement and counterintelligence missions throughout the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and bringing that optic uh, with uh, more recency uh, to the DC-3 position, right. uh, and, and getting a better understanding of, of how DC-3 had evolved over the years, and, and all goodness in, in every one of those evolutions, it's for the best of the Department of Defense, I wholly believe that. Right. Uh, I think coming directly from OSI with that recency of being in, having been in the OSI front office, of really understanding, again, also how law enforcement and counterintelligence requirements had evolved. Sure, uh, sure. And bringing that understanding to DC-3 to really better focus uh, DC-3 on how do we continue the evolution and move forward in supporting mm-hmm. the wide variety of DOD requirements, but not lose sight of, of our founding requirements of, of providing strong support uh, for the law enforcement and counterintelligence community. So that right. is very high on my radar. Right. Uh, it, it will be throughout my tenure of, of again, maintaining that foundational focus of law mm-hmm. enforcement mm-hmm. and counterintelligence uh, and doing so in a way that doesn't negate, again, the continued evolution in the other lines of effort that are that are equally as important, yeah. uh, but not more so than, than our founding requirements. Yeah. Now, uh, your transition from uh, OSI's uh, executive directorship to uh, the one here at DC3, uh, uh, would you consider that then... Uh, uh, the, the, the OSI uh, experience uh, making more of a seamless transition for you into uh, the DC-3 position? Being, like you said, being able to understand them a little bit better and, and more th- uh, thoroughly uh, than maybe before? 
Yeah, I think so. Uh, so two different organizations. Uh, yeah. So again, although part of the OSI family, uh, sure. Again, based on that evolution, they they DC three uh, is just a different mission set than I think. Again, from the OSI front office that right. I understood. Sure. Sure. Uh, but in terms of the transition, so I replaced. Uh, Retired Vice Commander of OSI, Steve Shirley, who'd right. been in that Executive Director position for 14 years. Yes, sir. Uh, so I'm not the first OSI agent to go over there, and, and, and I don't believe I'll be the last. Right, right. Uh, so I think it is a natural transition. I, I think it helps maintain that foundational relationship mm-hmm. with, again, not just OSI, but with the law enforcement and counterintelligence community. Very good. Uh, so no, it, it was it was definitely an easy transition. It was very welcoming from the DC3 team, and, and again, it's a job that I've been in for a little over two years now, and, and I've loved every day of it. Very good. Yeah, I can tell you, 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 uh, the way you talk about it, it uh, it's, it's, it's almost kind of like a labor of love uh, that, that this is, this is what you were meant to do, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> now, uh, sir, in researching some of OSI's uh, most notable cases recently through the years uh, for our Global Reliance Legacy Edition magazine, I came across a story about OSI special agents creating a disc splicing technique that produced evidence to convict a first-degree murder suspect and sentence him to life in prison. DC3 uh, specializes in repairing damaged media and extracting evidence for court proceedings. Now, as the executive director, how impressed are you with the expertise shown by your folks to help facilitate justice? Yeah, so that's so again speaking very specifically to digital multimedia forensics, that is obviously a world of, of continuous evolution as technologies evolve. Uh, and so maintaining the expertise uh, internal to DC3 to do Again, the elements of the the digital multimedia forensics mission mm-hmm. uh, that not everybody is postured to do because of whether it's it's they shouldn't invest in in the resources needed to do uh, again stuff that's incredibly complex in terms of no yeah. kidding yeah uh, whether it's again the disc splicing or damaged media and, and putting a hard drive back together uh, so to have the expertise to have the Faraday room and the other things that you need to do that properly yeah yeah again that's why DC3 was stood up so that each of the services is not investing in those capabilities independently but they can they rely on a single DOD source to provide that for the department yeah sir you mentioned a Faraday room uh, again for our uh, novice listeners could we uh, could you explain just briefly what that is the Faraday room yeah and it will be at a novice level so okay. uh, so <laughs> Faraday room is is kind of it's almost think of one of those like dustless environments oh, okay. say, it's right, an enclosed right. area that it now allows you to do almost like a it's it's I'm not sure what the technical term is, but right. it's, it's that 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 very kind of white gloved environment okay. uh, that removes all the dust particles and it allows. Is it kind of like a little vacuum area? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert. Right, right, room. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so our capabilities in that. So again, going back to the case you mentioned, which was the the disc splicing, which was no kidding. Think back to floppy disks, and mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. the suspect yeah, took yeah. took scissors. Uh, and cut a disc apart, and, and again, the presumption back then, and this was in the, I think the mid '80s, right, was saying, hey, "Look, right. we'll, no data will ever be recovered off that disc." Yeah. And again, just innovation and, and, and testing various ways of how can you put that disc back together and actually glean data off it. Sure. Uh, sure. So we continue to do that uh, again. Wow. So you get hard drives that are smashed with hammers. You get now new <laughs> encryption problems. Right. Uh, so the whole lawful, lawful access uh, problem, where again, technologies are becoming more capable from mm-hmm. from the commercial side. Uh, to prevent sure. law enforcement lawful access, if you have the warrant and the, and the permissions to get in, uh, today's software is preventing you from doing that. So evolving wow. those capabilities to ensure that the department uh, and those that we support have that lawful access, mm-hmm. uh, and to be able to retrieve the information that they need in support of their investigation. Sure, sure. Uh, I'll give you one real quick vignette. So yeah. we had a case that, that again we're very proud of. So not law enforcement, not criminal. Right. Uh, 
but there was a, a, a flight mishap. So we had a, a plane, it was a Navy aircraft that had crashed mm-hmm. uh, in the ocean, and it literally mm-hmm. sank to about 18,000 feet below sea level. Wow. Uh, and this was submerged for over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they finally were able to salvage uh, what they needed to. Uh, and there was, uh, think, kind of the black box or, or other digital uh, evidence that would yeah. come off that yeah. flight. After having been submerged, again, 18,000 feet of, of salt water, yeah. uh, we were able to, no kidding, do digital multimedia forensics on that device and extract in excess of 90% of the data off of that device. Wow. Uh, so again, it's just a highly skilled <laughs> expertise to yeah. do very complex examinations. Unbelievable. Very good. Uh, and I just kind of, uh, uh, you mentioned evolution. That kind of ties into my next question here. Uh, you know, these days we hear a lot about the need for law enforcement to keep up with the ever-evolving challenges presented by our adversaries. Uh, and as you just mentioned, I guess that would be a pretty fair assessment uh, to make about DCI. You're, you're continually evolving, continuing to, to keep up. Like you said, stay left of the boom to try to be ahead of uh, the adversaries instead of just keeping up with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll go back. I mean, on that one, I mean, my, my point to talk on that was was the lawful access. And again, this is yeah. a, a a growing problem for law enforcement and, and counterintelligence that, as privacy expectations remain constant, sure, where, where sure. folks when they buy devices, they want to know that it's secure. Right. Right. Uh, but the level of complexity that now commercial vendors are putting into the security of these devices, enabling lawful access is becoming more difficult. Wow. Uh, so I think the San Bernardino sh- shooting a couple years ago, where Again, we have a cell phone seized from that terrorist incident. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's an, a, a device that, no kidding, law enforcement could not get into for an extended period of time. And, and, mm-hmm. and through proper court requests to get lawful access, to get uh, associate permissions. Uh, and again, it came down to digital multimedia forensics and, and some very smart individual that knows that world that, that found an avenue to get into that device uh, and to defeat, defeat the security provisions to ensure that we have yeah. lawful access. Uh, to gain the information that's needed in support of an, of, of an investigation. Wow. Well, it's, uh, it's incredible. Just listening to you talk about this, uh, uh, so much goes on behind the scenes that uh, you know goes into uh, making sure justice is served. Uh, uh, it really is uh, kind of eyebrow-rising, at least uh, to a novice like myself, yeah. as far as that's concerned. No, but I think that, I mean, yeah. so you add to that the complexity of, so IoT, Internet of Things. So yeah. now you're no kidding, you've got agents that'll walk into a crime scene, and, and literally you can have a refrigerator, that may contain evidence that's vital to that crime. Hmm. Uh, you've got Alexa devices, Google Home, all these these Internet of Thing devices, and how do you, no kidding, extract data off of those devices that might be of evidentiary value to a crime? Right. Uh, right. Apps. So every cell phone now, you, you know you've got the App Store and you can download uh, any variety of applications. Every one of those applications has a unique element of security. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate that security for that individual, not the phone, but the, no kidding, the app itself? Wow. Where's the data housed? How do you get access to that data? Wow. Uh, wow. So federating the capability of, of understanding how those applications work, what the security is behind them, and how do you, no kidding, obtain the digital artifacts from those devices to be able to inform an investigation or an operation. Yeah. Uh, so incredibly complex. Wow, no doubt. Uh, now, going back to that uh, Origins and Evolution magazine article of yours, you mentioned an original operating location uh, footprint of about 14 people, uh, which had grown to approximately 450, at least at the time of the article, and as you just mentioned earlier, uh, close to 500 uh, military, civilian, and contractor uh, personnel today. Uh, that must speak volumes to the growing importance uh, of the services that DC3 provides, uh, do you have any further thoughts on that? I mean, uh, you are now thought of as uh, like the, the, the go-to agency, you know, for digital forensics and, and things along that line. Yeah, 
So, so part of the evolution I didn't talk to previously. So, and again, so it, it's it's maintaining the focus on foundational law enforcement and counterintelligence, mm-hmm. but at the same time recognizing so a DoD center of excellence for digital multimedia forensics. We're also one of seven federal cyber centers for whole of government. Uh, again, think tabletop exercises. How do we better share information across the whole of government? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cyber training, again, foundationally, our, our cyber training academy was built for law enforcement and counterintelligence, how to train investigators and those who do operations uh, of how to recognize how the adversary operates in cyberspace, how to mm-hmm. obtain information off of devices, how right. to properly seize those devices. Sure. Uh, even that mission set has, again, evolved towards a DOD-wide mission. So we're mm-hmm. now involved in training cyber mission forces. Uh, we now have uh, an international training mission, so we've trained the Australian uh, MOD for their right. cyber mission forces. So it's a global reach now. It's a global reach uh, through, again, through the request and partnership of, of those who we support. So mm-hmm. our engagement with cyber com- uh, excuse me, our engagement with the Australians was at the behest of, of U.S. Cyber Command. Right. Uh, right. We're also involved in training on the law enforcement and counterintelligence. Uh, those counterparts, again, in coordination with OSI, with NCIS, with Army CID. Uh, to, again, ensure that we are best postured to support what their requirements are. Very, very good. Sir, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I, I appreciate the time here today. Uh, I, I will tell you, so, again, I'm here this morning uh, for the signing of some memorandums. Right. For and, again, congratulations on becoming a FOA. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> part of the commitment tied to this, again, evolution towards a FOA is again, that, that resounding and continued commitment to law enforcement and counterintelligence. Uh, and, and frankly, so while we will be a, a separate field operating agency in the Air Force, uh, again, the relationship with OSI will continue. Uh, and certainly my role and my support and my focus on supporting, again, the entire DOD law enforcement and counterintelligence community will continue. So, uh, again, we're not going far. Uh, it's, it's a restructure that I think is overdue, but it's not going to really change a whole lot about who we are and, and, and how we focus on supporting the wide wide range of customers that we're charged to support. The beat goes on for DC3? Absolutely. <laughs> Our guest has been the Executive Director of the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, Mr. Jeffrey Speck. Sir, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Good to see you again. And uh, and again, congrats on the uh, uh, Field Operating Agency designation. Thanks, Wayne. I appreciate the time. And thank all of you for listening. For OSI Today, I'm Wayne Amon saying so long for now.